Good morning. This morning's a good morning for a multitude of reasons. One is I made sure my mic was off when we were singing. (laughs) Secondly, on the day that my wife is not here to remind me to smile during sermons, I found a little ironic that as I pulled in, the sign out front said smile. So I must be pretty bad at that. But most importantly, we're closing our sermon series on honorable exiles with an awesome, awesome passage. Before we get into the uh, sermon this morning, I want to lead into the message by recalling some key ideas from the series, then we'll jump right into it. When we began the series in chapter 1, we learned that the hope that we have obtained in Christ will not perish, it will not wear out, and as Peter describes it, it's an imperishable inheritance. In chapter 2, Christians are called to be an alternative society within society. You see, the way that we live like Jesus with one another is to be an attractive alternative for those around us. In chapter 3, we were reminded that though Jesus suffered, he suffered for what was right before God's eyes, and we likewise are to follow in his footsteps. We are to suffer for the right thing, the right way. We honor God by blessing our enemies. In chapter 4, we saw that we are to avoid practicing the habits of our pre-Jesus days. And consequently, it may cause us to lose friends. It may cause us to receive backlash. However, we aren't to lose heart. Because we also saw that when we are reviled for our faith, we are blessed because it reveals that our faith is authentic. As verse 14 says, it proves that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory and of God rests on us. In our passage this morning, shows that we can take refuge in suffering under the promises of God because God promises to lift up those who faithfully endure. So if you would please uh, give your attention to the reading of God's word, we'll get right into it. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 through 14. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day to gather together in your house, and uh, we thank you and praise you for the victory that we have obtained in Christ. And Father, we all long and await the joy that uh, we will experience when we get to see you face to face. Pray that you open our hearts and minds and that you guide my thoughts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. In an article titled, Four Thoughts on Persecution in America, a pastor by the name of Kevin DeYoung writes, Persecution is not something that befalls only a few Christians. 
The point is plain. While martyrdom is a special category set aside for a select number of Christians, persecution is the normal experience of every Christian everywhere. From stiff fines to family shame to being kicked off college campuses to laws against sharing our faith to unjust trials to public mockery and scorn to arrest and brutality, if we faithfully follow Jesus in this world, we will face persecution at some point in our Christian discipleship. Even American Christians, if they are really Christians, will have crosses to carry. See, when we experience societal pressures and persecutions as a result of our faith, we can sometimes become anxious because we don't know what the outcomes will be. And we begin to worry about things such as, are we going to be able to keep our job? You know, what's going to happen if my kids get suspended because of their views on gender? You know, what's going to happen to our church if they pass a new law that censors what we can and can't say? That was already tried two years ago in Texas. You know, what if my family rejects me because of my faith? The passage this morning is going to help us understand that although, as Christians, we can expect backlash from society, we don't need to be anxious over the unknowns. Whatever outcome transpires or whatever consequences we face is not our end. And we have a joy, brothers and sisters, that awaits us in heaven that far outweighs any pressures that we may experience here on earth. And it's like the joys that you have when you hold your newborn after the long, agonizing, intense labor pains. For those of us who can't empathize with that, it may be more like experiencing the victory of the biggest game of your season after the long hours of practice and persevering through the fatigue and the sore muscles. But in both cases, the point being is that after the struggle, after the suffering, you experience a sense of joy so great that it changes your perspective on what you endured while getting there. And that is what the passage is about. We don't need to be anxious about suffering because our caring God promises that those who suffer for his name will spend eternity in his presence. Emphasis on will. Will spend eternity in his presence. Now, the first part of this sermon we're going to call Surviving the Birth Pains, and the second we'll call Experiencing the Joy Afterwards. So let's get right into it. How can we as Christians make it through the birth pains? We are humbly to submit ourselves to God's power because humbly, humbling ourselves under God's power leads to victory, not defeat. And the question is, why is this true? It's true because God cares for the humble. We see this in verses 6 through 7. It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, right off the bat, I don't think that humble, humbling ourselves simply means that we wake up, we stand up in a room and declare before the world that we will be humble today. Now, I would say that that's a start because we do need to acknowledge something that we ought to do. However, the word humble in this context means to make low or assign a lower rank or position to. So humbling ourselves not only means that we acknowledge that God is infinitely more powerful than we are, but that we live in submissive obedience to his instruction for our lives. And this is important because applying God's word to our lives gives us the strength and the perseverance that we need to survive and make it through the birth pains. 
Now, I know many of us, if not all of us, with me being the exception, don't like the word submission. It's a joke. I don't like it either. <laughs> but when we humbly subject ourselves under God's power, we are blessed as a result. Verse 6 says that he exalts or he lifts up the humble. Now, here's the kicker. He doesn't force us to act in humility. And what we share in common with the proud is that both proud and humble people will experience anxieties. They both experience sufferings. The difference is God's protective hand only sustains those who listen and obey his word. And this starts with us humbly trusting that God already knows the outcome of every situation and that God knows the best way to guide us through it. God honors humility. And we see this in Christ's life in Philippians 2, 5 through 10, which says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, though Jesus will be the only one bowed to, God lifts up the humble who remain faithful to him through the suffering. And we can remain faithful to God in the suffering by holding on to his promises. And I understand that's a pretty abstract, lofty theory, so let me see if I can give some teeth to it. Let's take this for example. Heaven forbid if any one of us were to lose our job because of our faith, and then we're faced with the anxieties of not knowing how the bills are going to be paid, not knowing how the kids are going to be fed, not knowing how the repairs on our car are going to be fixed. We can hold on to the promises of God in this particular case because the promises of God remind us that we're not left to fend for ourselves. Our God knows and cares for our needs, even the needs that abruptly arise from experiencing backlash from society as a result of our faith. And it's important to note that the word care is a verb, and it's important to note this because caring is not just an intangible characteristic of God. It's something that he does. It flows from his character. We're reminded of this in Matthew 6 because it says that God feeds the birds of the air and he clothes the grass of the field and each one of you are far more important to God than they are. He knows and will provide for your needs even if you lose your job or even if the tires on your cars get slashed. Because God cares for the humble, he calls for the humble to cast all their anxiety onto him. The Greek word for all translates to all. It means every single one. And I say this because I just recently read a section in a book written by a pastor by the name of Paul Cedar, who he shares a story that after he preached on this very passage, a lady came up to him afterwards and she said, Pastor, I don't bother God with my small problems. I only bring the big ones. But I want you to notice that nowhere in this passage, I mean, look at it with me, nowhere in this passage does God qualify what anxieties you should and should not bring to them. I promise you, he wants them all. The prideful heart will say, I can do this myself. I don't need God, I can figure it out on my own. And the pr proud heart holds on to the worries that cause anxiety. 
But remember, we were warned last week in verse 5 that God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble because he cares for the humble. Now, with all this talk of humbling ourselves, what does that practically look like? Well, first, when we humble ourselves under God's power, we're acknowledging that God is in complete control of our circumstances, and we're not. And it also means that we take every anxiety before him in prayer, not just the big ones. Humbling ourselves means that we spend time in God's word to understand what God wants from us and how, when we do experience those societal pressures, that we ought to react. It also means that we get plugged into a local church to worship and to be nourished by the word of God. And this is important because when we hear the word of God, we are reminded of his promises. And I emphasize reminded because you might be able to relate to me with this. And forgive the uh, illustration, but how many of us, spiritually speaking, can start out Monday feeling like a juicy grape, but as the week unravels and unfolds, by the time Saturday comes around, we feel more like a dried up raisin. It's not that we didn't know the promises of God. It's because what we went through caused us to temporarily forget those. And I've heard many people say, not just here, but in church in general, that after a sermon, they may not have learned something new, but what they did here, they really need to be reminded of. It's like a breath of fresh air. Humbling ourselves also means that we not only spend time in fellowship with one another, but that we make it an intentional point to encourage one another and strengthen each other's faith throughout the week. We can do this a few different ways. We can simply listen to a hurting brother or sister. And I know that that may sound overly simplified. It may not sound good enough or proactive enough, but don't minimize how effective just listening to someone can really be. We can pray for one another. We can give or listen to wise counsel from another personal testimony, and to echo what uh, Pastor Chad was saying about the elders last week, you know, I've asked some questions to the elders, Pastor Chad, some of you here in the congregation, and in those cases, I've been more on the listening end of receiving the counsel, and it's been, it's been huge in my life. You know, I've got some clarity on some situations where I was uncertain about as far as the direction in which I'm going, and uh, I was given many perspectives that I just didn't see, and it lifted, in turn, my anxiety. So it does work. We also provide for the needs of one another. This can be done in a multitude of ways. I don't have time to exhaust every one, but it may look like monetary contributions. We not only do this as a church through offering, but we also help. I know that uh, we support a family in here with their involvement in missions. You know, through financial contribution, it may look like providing food for those in need. It can come in the way of lending tools out to do a job. If you don't have tools, it could be a strong back. It could even be providing a mode of transportation if the need be. And these are all things that God has graciously, graciously given to us to lift our anxieties and sustain us through the birth pains because he cares. The second reason why humbling ourselves leads to victory, not defeat, is because God equips the humble to resist their adversary. Verses 8 through 9 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. God equips the humble by giving the instruction on how to resist Satan. 
It says, first off, we are to be sober-minded and vigilant to the schemes of how and where our adversary is at work. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that I'm not the most vigilant when I'm full of life's worries. Obeying God's word protects us from being choked out by those worries and anxieties. However, if we reject God's instruction with an I-can-do-it-myself mindset, that will only lead to further anxiety, which in turn causes our hearts and minds to become distracted, particularly when it comes to resisting our enemy's attacks. Now, for example, Shannon and I were recently on our way to a dinner, and I had a lot of deadlines coming up that particular weekend and had a lot of other things on my mind, and I was supposed to get on the highway at this turn, and I just completely blew right by it. Had she not said something, I probably would have ended up in Spokane, but we got turned around, got on the highway, and we're on our merry way. But this is just a small situation of how uh, anxiety can impact our alertness. Now imagine that on a broader scale. If you are preoccupied with excessive anxiety every day, which is a symptom of trying to control things, you become very vulnerable to the attacks of Satan, and he will not go easy on you. He will not go easy on you. He wants you to doubt the goodness of God. He wants you to doubt that God is enough. And he wants you to take the path of least resistance where there is the least amount of suffering. And he wants to do this to you and I because he wants you and I to fail. Early church theologian St. Augustine describes Satan this way. Christ is called a lion because of his courage. The devil because of his ferocity. The one lion comes to conquer, the other one comes to hurt. Satan wants chaos to be met with chaos. If someone keys a cross in your car, it would take him great pleasure if you take a sledgehammer to theirs. And he lies to us through ideas like, if political laws put pressure on your freedom as a Christian, just stop being a Christian. And once those temptations become integrated into our decisions, our resistance to Satan's attacks become weak. We need to be sober to the reality that this is how our adversary works and that we are to resist him. How do we resist him? Our text says that we resist him firm in the faith, but why should we even be confident that resisting him firm in our faith will work in the first place? Everybody taking notes? Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Satan is already defeated. The war is already over. Now, Satan, if you remember, tried to do everything he could to keep the victory out of God's hands, but what happened? The resurrection happened. And that means that our adversary can do absolutely nothing to strip us away of the hope that we have already obtained through Christ. However, until Christ returns, our enemy's desire is to inflict as much harm and doubt and anxiety on the church as he possibly can, whether it be through a neighbor harassing you political laws passed that oppose Christian beliefs, perhaps being rejected by family members, perhaps experiencing opposition by false teachers, whatever the case may be, we will get some battle scars. Verse 9 tells us that this is happening worldwide, not just in America, not just in Mexico, not just in Canada, but wherever Christians are professing their faith in Christ, they will in some degree or another face persecution. New Testament scholar Karen Jobs writes, Resistance to some degree is to be expected wherever a Christian community takes seriously its commitment to God because the Christian church is the emergence of God's victory over the powers of darkness. 
Until Christ returns, the battle between good and evil will persist, and suffering for faith in Christ will be the norm for the Christian calling. The believer shares in what is the common experience of all Christians and is not alone in this. So let's get back to the question of how to resist giving in to the lies of Satan. We use God's word, we use God's church, and we use prayer. We ought to equip ourselves to combat the lies with truth by feeding our hearts and minds with the word of God. And if you recall, this is what Jesus did when he was being tempted in the wilderness. And to maybe put it in a modern example, let's say if your faith causes you to lose your job, Satan's life to you may be something like, whoever caused you to get fired should make a story up about them so that they too lose their job. It's only fair. Now, the truth to combat that in paraphrase form may be something like, wait a minute, I know that I shouldn't pay back evil for evil, and as far as it depends on me, I'm supposed to be at peace with all men. And I'm also told somewhere that it's only right for God to pay back with affliction those who afflict me. It comes from Romans 12, 17, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. And that's just uh, a brief example of uh, the application. Now, if you're like me, in that sometimes just repeating verses in your head isn't enough to bring truth into motion, we need to talk to God and let him know what we're struggling with, what we're battling through. We need a support buddy. I'm, of course, talking about prayer, and I'm talking about getting support from a brother or sister in Christ. You know, we should absolutely lean on one another for support in resisting Satan. Now, none of these things are listed in a particular order in which you should follow them, as if to say, if step one fails, go to step two, and if step two fails, go to step three. They should all be used collectively. God gives us these elements of grace to not only combat Satan, but to be reminded that he's got our backs even in the times when we don't think he does. We are promised that if we resist Satan God's way, he will flee from us just like he did with Jesus. Now that's the section of surviving the birth pains, enduring the birth pains. So let's move on to the joy that awaits us afterwards. Now get this, our temporary suffering is followed by an eternal and perfect restoration. Let's go to the text. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Peace be to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the suffering and the societal backlash that we experience only lasts but for a little while. This is important to know because as Jobs writes, what we believe about our future shapes how we live today. What we believe about our future shapes how we live today. We can endure the suffering now because we will be, it's promised by God, we will be partakers in the eternal glory to come. You know, I recently saw a clip on a sports network called Come On, Man, and uh, it showed a professional baseball player hit a ground ball to the second baseman, and the camera pans over to the second baseman, 
and it shows this player just picking up the ball, grabbing it from his glove, and as slow and casually as he can, just kind of do a light toss to the first baseman. I understand that was an easy out, but in my mind, I'm like, what if that's, this guy's quick? What if he burns you? It's kind of arrogant of him. But then the camera panned back to the batter's box, and you understand why. The batter never left home plate. He, too, realized that it was going to be an easy out. So in his mind, he was thinking, why even expend the energy to get down there? <laughs> and then it shows him leaving home plate, giving one of these gestures. Forget it. Which, in turn, prompted the, the host on the show to say, come on, man. Come on. <laughs> now, this is Peter's come on, man, to believers to persevere and not be anxious through the suffering because we're not out. We're not defeated. Because of the finished work of Christ, after the short time of enduring the insults, of losing friends along the way, and facing increasingly hostile laws toward our Christian belief, we will be partakers in experiencing the glory and splendor of God forever. And this is a big deal, so much so that our text says that the God of all grace himself makes sure that this will be accomplished. And we see and experience parts of his grace now, but we will see and experience them fully on that day when he calls us home. It's like what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Years ago, my dad bought an 87 Chevy pickup and it was pretty beat up, uh, had a lot of rust on it. And in some parts, you could see daylight going through the floorboard, and the interior's pretty beat up. And it was one of those projects where my mom was like, why did you buy this piece of junk, you know? Story has a happy ending. Um, after we started working on it for a while, it took us about a couple months. We replaced the bed on it, placed some doors, did some work on the interior, replaced the wheels and the tires, got it painted. And after the smoke cleared, the truck looked like it was pretty good better than it did when it rolled off the assembly line. And so one Sunday, we took it back to church from the guy that we uh, bought it off of because he wanted to see it. And when we showed up, he couldn't even believe that it was the same truck. The reason being is because it had a total makeover. It was restored. Now this is what it will be like for those who faithfully endure the short period of suffering here on earth. They will receive a total, complete makeover. And it's a promise the children of God have through Christ. And you can be certain that this is well within God's capabilities because he's already done it to his son Christ. If you remember, Christ confidently endured the suffering because he entrusted himself to the caring hands of his father and through which Christ was given his physical restoration from the grave and he now sits by God on the right hand of him, on the right hand of God on the throne where he awaits your arrival to give you your restoration and say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. That means God will perfect you to be without sin and you will no longer experience the effects of a hostile, sin-filled world. He will confirm and strengthen you. You won't ever again experience the feelings of doubt, of guilt, of shame, of unworthiness. Your faith will no longer be tested with suffering and as a matter of fact, your faith in the unseen will no longer be necessary because you will be seeing the God of your salvation face to face as literally as you and I are looking at one another right now. And on that day, he will establish you. 
This is when, if you remember back to chapter 2, talking about each one of you are living stones. This is when the shaping and molding of you as a living stone for God's church is complete. And he will place you where you belong for eternity as a co-heir with Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the joy that we have been promised that awaits us after this temporary short time of enduring suffering. God knows what lies ahead. He cares. And through his power, we will endure. And he will restore us like he's already done with Christ. We don't need to be anxious because this is a promise by God himself. Whatever pressures you face now is not even worth to be compared to what you will experience in the presence of God to come. One day we will be partakers in God's glory as one church. And this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.